Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to do First, first Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 20, the whole chapter. The previous chapter, Paul has introduced himself to the Thessalonians. I had not introduced himself. He already knew them. He had started the church, as recorded in Acts chapter 17. But what he had done is he had talked about how the Thessalonians had become imitators of him and of Jesus and how they were doing so well. They had spread the gospel all over the place in Macedonia and Achaia. They had turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and they were doing pretty good. So we see that Paul had a great relationship with this Corinthian church, uh, this Thessalonian church. And when we get to chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about his ministry and his relationship with this Thessalonian church. So the good feelings will continue as we go to chapter 2. So we start in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, brothers, that our visit with you was not without result. His visit, of course, was in recorded in Acts chapter 17 as the Thessalonican church was started. Now, preceding that visit, they had been to Philippi, which is right up the coast, the, the Thracian coast there, or the Macedonian coast, I'm sorry, up at Philippi. And there they had been beaten and imprisoned and kicked out of town. So they had come on down to Thessalonica. Now, Paul says, you yourselves know that our visit with you was not without result. Yes, there were lots of people saved. First Thessalonians 1.9, for they, those who in Macedonia had heard the report of the Thessalonians, they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So Paul is saying that his evangelistic efforts and church planting efforts in Thessalonica were quite successful. Not without result is the humble way of saying it. Not without double negative litotes, I think, is the, the figure of speech. Just a way of emphasize, just a way of saying it in a more elegant way. Sort of an understated way. And, of course, Paul says, for you yourselves know, the people that heard the efforts, the results, of the, good, the good results in Thessalonica by report from the Thessalonians, they knew about it. Well, of course, the people who made the report, the Thessalonians knew about it. So Paul says, you yourselves know. So everybody knows that the, it was a successful ministry. We go to verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 2. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered, and that was in Philippi when they got thrown in jail, Philippian jailer, and we were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Now, they cared about the Thessalonians enough to come even after they had previously suffered in Philippi. That didn't stop them, even though they probably suspected more suffering lay in store in Philippi. In fact, more natural, unspiritual men would have been deterred by all that suffering they had in Philippi, being thrown in jail. But not these Holy Spirit-infused men who were going to spread the gospel. little thing like getting beaten and thrown in jail, that wasn't going to slow them down. John Gill says this, they had been beaten with many stripes and put into prison and their feet made fast in the stocks at the instigation of the masters of the damsel that had a spirit of divination by whom they got much gain and which Paul dispossessed. This was in Philippi. I'll just read uh, one verse out of Acts 16. After they had inflicted many blows on them, that's the Philippians, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. We go to 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. That means their Paul's, our is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And the exhortation was to the Thessalonians. 
not from error, not from impurity, not from an intent to deceive. For instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but rather God who examines our hearts. If they had pleased men, they wouldn't have gotten beaten and thrown in jail, would they have? But they wanted to please God, and pleasing God meant they got beat. And so that's okay with them. They don't care. Price is worth the high price that they had to pay was worth it because of the high reward they had for serving the king. Now, notice that there's three types of ways that people can exhort a church with error, with impurity, or with an intent to deceive. And they don't necessarily have to come all at once. For example, you can, through negligence or just through lack of knowledge or ignorance, teach Arab with perfectly good hearts. And, and you can be perfectly moral about it. Impurity means impure morals. And you can have no intent to deceive because you meant to teach the truth, but you just made a mistake. So that's teaching from error. Paul didn't do that. Teaching from impurity could refer to teachers who are living ungodly lives, kind of like that guy, that, what's his name, uh, Todd Bentley. You know, you go around shacking up with people, making homosexual advances. You know, it, it doesn't. You could be teaching. He could be teaching pure doctrine, which I doubt he was. But if he, just to say he was, well, but he's teaching with impurity or an intent to deceive. You could teach error with no intent to deceive. You could teach. You could be an impure, morally impure teacher, but have no intent to deceive at all. You just live it in sin, but you're still teaching orthodoxy. So, or you could be be all three. You could be teaching error, and you could be living a godless life, and you could be intentionally deceiving the people you're talking to. But anyway, my point is you don't have to all teach these things all at once. A good teacher will make sure he's teaching the truth the best way he can find it. He needs to live a moral life so that he doesn't cause scandal and reproach to fall on the gospel. And he should never intend to deceive anybody, but he should intend to build up and to bring people closer to Christ. Now, when Paul says he didn't teach from impurity, he might have been alluding to pagan gods, as a commentator named Grant that I found said. John Gill says pagan gods were celebrated for their adulteries, fornications, uncleannesses, thefts, barbarities, and profligacies of the most odious kind. <laughs> now, why Paul said this, I don't know. Perhaps he's referring to false teachers who came in at Thessalonica and tried to teach from error or impurity or in, an intent to deceive. I don't know. But I do know this, Paul was not shy about his moral and doctrinal purity when he when he needed to be. He was not shy about it. He, he was modest about it. But he would often say, I'm doing a good thing here in the Lord. And in fact, he says in verse 4, Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but rather God who examines our heart. He says he's approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. The reason God approves him is because he doesn't teach from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. And God examines his heart to know whether he's teaching from error, impurity, or an intent to deceive. We go to 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through 6. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. This does sound like Paul's referring to some teachers who aren't doing so good there in Thessalonica. Grant, the commentator, says that this flattering speech reference and the other negative things that Paul says there in these two verses, the greedy motives and seeking glory and so forth, probably is alluding to practice of, practices of idolaters who are trying to seduce the Thessalonians. Now, notice that Paul says he didn't teach with greedy motives, with greed, and he didn't seek for glory from people. Those are the two of the famous three Gs that, all, that can trip up a minister of the gospel. The three G's are gold, 
glory. Gold is greed. Greed for gold. So gold is greedy motives. Glory, seeking glory, feed your pride. And the last is girls. Now, Paul didn't mention girls here. If he'd have been living in modern America, he probably would have. Because, gosh, how many times you turn around, some preacher's got some, some sexual scandal going on. They didn't seek money. They didn't seek glory. They did obtain some glory sometimes. But most, well, no, they didn't really. Not really. They didn't, they didn't obtain. Well, they, they, they had a good reputation amongst the church, I guess. But that's not a lot of glory amongst the world. They were poor, itinerant tent makers wandering around outside the mainstreams of the Judaistic schools unknown by the Roman Empire at first, and then when they were known, they were persecuted by the Roman Empire. No, they didn't, and they were all in prison half the time. A lot of the time, they didn't have money, so they didn't have glory. They didn't have money. They weren't greedy. Paul never took money from any church he was ministering to. Why did he do that? To avoid charges of greedy motives. Paul says, we didn't have any greedy motives, and he could say that easily because he could say, hey, hey, Thessalonians, we didn't take any money from you. He also, to show that he, uh, another reason why he didn't take money but work with his own hands was to keep people thinking that they didn't need to work, keep Thessalonians thinking they didn't need to work. Paul says, no, I'll show you what it means to work hard. So no greed, no glory. Those That's very important for ministers of the gospel if we want to imitate Paul's example, which I think is a good idea. First Thessalonians 2, 7-8, through 8, Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our, our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul says we could have been a burden as Christ's apostle. A burden means he means a financial burden. You could have had to support us. And why could he say we could have? Because Paul had the right to support us as an apostle. As he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 4, don't we have the right to eat and drink? As you read the whole chapter, he said, yeah, he didn't exercise the right, but he had the right. And the right also here at the Thessalonians. He could have exercised the right here in Thessalonia, but he decided not to. He said, we care before you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. A nursing mother does not expect support from her infant children. And so Paul says, I don't expect church from support from my infant church, the Thessalonians. Now, we're assuming that Paul is still talking about money here. We were gentle among you, not asking for money. And I think the context is money. It could be a spiritual burden. We, we were gentle among you, and, and we were not a spiritual burden to you. We could have been a burden to you spiritually, but I don't think so. I think he's talking about money because in verse 9, he talks about working night and day so we wouldn't be a burden to you. That's talking about money. And that's just the next verse. How about in verse 5? He says we didn't... Pr- teach among you with greedy motives. So he's talking about money. So nursing mother nurtures her own children. A mother does not expect money from her child. And so Paul says, I don't expect money from you Thessalonians. I just wanted to feed you. Why does Paul call the Thessalonians his children? Because Paul, Silas and Timothy and his friend, his friends had founded their church and so they were his spiritual children. We go to verses 9 and 10 in 1 Thessalonians 2. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. Now, Paul mentions in verse 9 his labor and hardship. That would be his making tits. It's remarkable that an apostle would do this. The options as to why he would do it is that the Thessalonians were poor and he didn't want to put a burden on them, a financial burden. 
Most probably it was because he didn't want his motives to be impugned. He didn't want people to think he was preaching to get rich. And also he wanted to be a good example of them because of some people thinking Jesus had come back, they didn't have to work. So he had lots of reasons to do this. And he mentions it to them, labor and hardship. He didn't take money from them. Now, John Gill says the labor might not be, might be more than just tent making. It might include spiritual labor, teaching and praying and so forth. But whatever it was, it was hard labor, working night and day. That's not easy, folks, just so that he would not be a burden to any of the apostles. Now, this supports the view that Paul spent a long time at Thessalonica. There's two views on this by scholars. Some people say that because of a comment in Acts 17 that Paul stayed for three Sabbaths, he didn't stay for three Sabbaths. He, he taught in the synagogue for three Sabbaths at Thessalonica. From there, people say, well, that means he only stayed there in Thessalonica for three weeks. But other people say that just was mentioned of the three times he went to the synagogue, but he stayed there a long time after that. I myself favor the long view, and this is one reason why, because he worked with tents. It's, hardly, it's hard to imagine. He just, it's hard to get set up to just work for three weeks. He needed to support himself, so he set up business, set up shop. Also, his receiving supplies from Philippi suggests a long stay. Philippians 4.16, For even in Thessalonica you sent gifts for my needs several times. Several times in three weeks? No, I think it's longer than that. Although, Daniel Wallace holds to the short stay view. But anyway, I, I think it's he stayed longer than three weeks. It's ironic that in order to prove that he would not be a financial burden to the Thessalonians, he didn't work. And with that example, some of the Thessalonians nevertheless quit working. 2 Thessalonians 3.11, For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. So apparently Paul's lesson didn't work for some Thessalonians. Now Paul says he worked devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly. He worked devoutly towards God. He worked righteously towards men, and he walked blamelessly toward himself. That's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea, as well as Grant. And we can see here that Paul is not shy about appealing to his own virtuous conduct. I was devout. I was righteous. I was blameless when I worked among you. Most people today, I don't think, would be quite that blunt about it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comfort, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul has already compared himself to their mother. In verse 7, he says, I am with you as a gentle nursing mother. And again, I, I forgot to mention when we were talking about that, that doesn't give you an impression of an authoritarian apostle saying, I'm an apostle, you do what I say. No, he was with them as a gentle nursing mother. He's also with them as a father with his own children. Why does he call, call them his children? Because he and his fellow apostles, Silas and Timothy, started the church there in Thessalonica. He is a father, not in an authoritative, but an affectionate way, as John Gill says. Note the words of affection that he uses after, in verse 12, we encouraged, comforted, and implored you. We encouraged you as a father, we comforted you as a father, and we implored you as a father. Paul called himself, himself the father of the Corinthians also, 1 Corinthians 4.15. For you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, spiritual fathers. That's why Paul cares so much about the Corinthian church and the Thessalonian church. Note that Paul is doing pastoral work here. He started the church, but now he's trying to do things that you would typically think an elder would do, a shepherd would do, a pastor would do. But an apostle does more than just establish a church. He goes back and he checks on them. He wants to make sure that everything is okay. He doesn't have the authority to tell them what to do. The authority is within the local church, but he does have a duty to be concerned about the churches he starts. 
Now, Paul mentions that God has called the Thessalonians into his, God's own kingdom and glory, God's kingdom. There, it's obviously the church. The Thessalonians have a church, and they're in God's kingdom. The church and the kingdom are the same thing, at least on earth. Classic dispensationalists love to split the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, out from the church. Whenever they hear kingdom, see kingdom, they think millennium far off into the future. But no, 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 no. I think progressive dispensationalists don't do that so much now. But the church and the kingdom, just equate the two in your mind. Now, you could say the kingdom of God also applies to people up in heaven like angels. But on earth, the kingdom of God is where believers in Christ are. We go to verse 13. This is why we certainly constantly thank God. Why do they constantly thank God? Because God has called you into his own kingdom and glory in verse 12. Because when you receive this message about God that you heard from us, you welcome it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God, which also works effectively in you believers. So the Thessalonians weren't following Paul, they were following God, because it was not a human message that Paul spoke. It was not from him, it was from God. So they were really following God, not Paul. That message of God worked effectively in the Thessalonian believers, which shows that the Word of God is not merely academic, it brings results in people's lives. There's no greater miracle than the evidence of a changed life when people are totally different than when they were before they got saved. Here's an example of how that message of God was working in the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians developed patient endurance in trial. 1 Thessalonians 2.14 for you brothers. That's the next verse which we're getting ready to read. You brothers became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you also have suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, these are churches that are composed of Jewish Christians, probably started by the Jerusalem church and ministers going out from Jerusalem. Now, how did the Thessalonians, who were partially Jewish, partially Gentiles, how did they become imitators of God's churches in Judea, the Jewish churches? This is how, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country. In other words, just as the Jews, the Jewish Christians in Israel were persecuted by the unbelieving Jews, likewise, you Thessalonians were persecuted by the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica. Let's show that. Acts 17, 5 through 6. This is in Thessalonica on the second journey. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. That's where the disciples were staying. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down here, upside down, have come here too. So, persecution everywhere. Jewish churches in Judea got persecuted by unbelieving Jews, and predominantly Gentile churches in Thessalonica were being persecuted by Jews. The Jews were everywhere persecuting the Christians at first. Paul mentions these Jews. Well, let me back up a minute here. Verse 14, you've become imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, Jews of your own country, just as they did, the churches in Judea did from the Jews who lived there in Jerusalem, these Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. Now, these Jews killed the Lord Jesus, not directly. They used the Romans to do it. They weren't able to do it directly, but... If it hadn't been for the Jews, Jesus wouldn't have gotten killed. And again, that's talking about the Jewish leaders 
of that time, it's not talking about Jews of all time and all places. That wicked generation of Jews, not all generations of Jews, but that wicked generation of Jews killed the Lord Jesus, killed the prophets. Example, Isaiah was put to death, as John Gill points out. Matthew 23, 31 says, You therefore testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus is speaking to his Jewish enemies then in Matthew 23, 31. So these evil Jews that were all over the Roman Empire persecuting the church everywhere, they started out on their persecution career by killing Jesus and the prophets in the Old Testament. Now Paul finishes up his indictment of the Jerusalem Jews by saying they not only killed Jesus and the prophets, they persecuted us. Now this is obvious, you read the book of Acts, but let me just take the example on the first missionary journey. Acts 13.45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, this is at Pisidian Antioch on the first journey, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Five verses later in Acts 13, But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. This is still in Pisidian Antioch. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the district. So the Jews reviled him, stirred up prejudice and opposition amongst God-fearing women. God-fearing women would be those who are allied with the Jews partially. They believed in monotheism, even though they weren't doing all the law. But they were allied with the Jews, and they persecuted Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. So then later on in Acts 14.2, Paul and Barnabas are now at Iconium. The unbelieving Jews at Iconium stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so then they go to Lystra, the next town on their journey, Acts 14.19. But some Jews, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the two towns we just saw, the Jews were persecuting Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas. These Jews followed Paul and Barnabas out of town, came to Lystra, and when they went over the crowds at Lystra, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Now they've really gotten serious. Now they're just, just not stirring up people against Paul and Barnabas. They actually stoned him and tried to kill him. So yeah, the Jews persecuted Paul a whole bunch. As John Gill says, the Jews, speaking from Paul's perspective, perspective. The Jews have drove us out of our own country and pursued us. That should be driven, really, but I guess that's old English. Have drove us out of our own country and pursued us from place to place and caused us to flee from one city to another. Adam Clark says it is worthy of remark that in almost every case, the Jews were the leaders of all persecutions against the apostles in the infant church. And what they could not do themselves, they instigated others to do, usually the Romans. And as a matter of fact, in the very time that Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians, he's being persecuted by the Jews in Corinth. We read in Acts 18, 5-6, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his robe and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So the Jews there in Corinth were resisting Paul. They were blaspheming God. In verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and of course that means he was in Corinth, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. So the Jews took him before the court. Well, this hostility toward Paul and Jesus and the prophets is evident also in scriptures dealing with the Jews' hostility towards Jesus, Acts 8.1. So I'll agree with putting him Excuse me, this is not against Jesus, this is against Stephen. Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. Remember, Paul, Saul was a big-shot Jew at the time. 
On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So that means the Jews were after the Jewish Christians. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Exiled, persecuted, stoned to death. Hebrews 10.32, remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The author of the Hebrews is talking to Jewish Christians and said that you Jewish Christians endured a hard struggle with sufferings. It was their fellow countrymen, unbelieving Jews, who were throwing them into jail and depriving them of food and wealth and so forth. Paul says in verse 15, 1 Thessalonians 2, that they, these disbelieving Jews, were hostile to everyone. They displeased God, obviously, and they were hostile to everyone. That means Jews and Gentiles, everybody. Anybody that believed, everyone that believed, they were hostile to. Verse 16, hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And, of course, those examples I just gave you in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Corinth is just for example. They were trying to stop the message of the gospel. As a result, Paul continues in verse 16, they are always completing the number of their sins, and wrath has overtaken them at last. In other words, they're bringing their sinfulness to maturity. They're perfecting their sinful sinfulness. Wrath has overtaken them at last. Now, this is interesting here. This is according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. He says that Paul is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, of course, this letter was written in AD 51, so Paul it might be anticipating a little bit, but he says, has overtaken them at last. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that the past tense there implies that the wrath had already begun, and he points out that in AD 48, which was three years before this letter was written, a tumult had occurred at the Passover in Jerusalem, and 30,000 people had been killed. The Romans killed them in the, in the riot, I guess. So this was a foretaste of 87. I don't know if Jameson Fawcett and Brown is right about that, but I wouldn't be surprised because I don't know what else he could mean. If he says wrath has overtaken them at last, he could say it's been done in the past. It has overtaken them in the mind of God, and it hasn't worked itself out in history yet. So you could say that refers to what? What, confer, or what else would it refer to? 8070, when they, get, when they get completely destroyed. It could be wrath of God only at the end of the world, maybe, but I think it's 8070. Now, it's interesting that the Jews were so intent on stopping Paul from and his fellow apostles from preaching to Gentiles. It seems, this is according to the commentator Grant, it seems that a devout Jew would be happy for a Gentile, a Jewish preacher to go out and preach a stupid lie that this man had resurrected from the dead. Well, that can't be true. Well, let them go ahead and believe their stupidity. We don't care. But why did they fight it so hard? Because they knew deep down in their heart it was true because it was having a powerful effect on people that would believe in this. So you would think that they would be glad to have the Gentiles deluded, but secretly, I believe, they secretly sensed the power of what they were facing. And they realized, man, we've got to stop this because he is leading a bunch of Jews into the Christian faith. So they might have thought it was a stupid lie, but if it was a stupid lie, it was a stupid lie that had a lot of power and convincing authority. One more comment before we leave. This is an anti-Catholic comment by Adam Clark. In verse 14, Paul says, For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus. But Paul doesn't mention anything about imitating the church at Rome. He mentions the churches in Judea because that was the true mother church. It wasn't the mother church at Rome. It was the church in Judea. And Jerusalem, that was the mother church. That's something that Catholics might like to contemplate when they think about the glories of Rome. Let's go to verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 2. But as for us, brothers, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. 
Well, the fact that Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave, that's the we, he's referring to the we, after we were forced to leave, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, this actually worked to the good of the Thessalonians because they learned to stand without Paul. And that's what apostles are supposed to do. They're supposed to start the church, and then they don't sit there and run it like these Western missionaries did, thus crippling the, the development of churches in places like Africa. They need to stand on their own two feet. So that means you've got to leave. Now, Paul didn't leave voluntarily. He was forced to leave because of the uproar, the riot that started there, because he had cast that demon out of that fortune-telling girl and ruined the people's business, and they started a riot, and they had to leave. But as a principle, even if you don't have to leave, at some point it's good to leave and let the church work out its problems on, on its own and then go back and check with them. How are you doing? Do you need some help? Do you need some encouragement? And that's what Paul's doing here is he's in Corinth and he's writing back to the Thessalonians trying to encourage them. And he says, We greatly desired made, made every effort to return and see you face to face. Well, if he was going to see him face to face, if he wasn't going to do it in this life, he was going to see him face to face in the world to come. But I think he was talking about face to face in this life, but he wasn't able to do it. He said he greatly desired to do it because he had the heart of a true shepherd. He longed for them as a parent would long for his children. He had already compared himself to their mother in verse 7 and their father in verse 11. Well, parents like to see their children. You want to go back and see them. Notice he says, but as for us, brothers, after we were forced to leave, we greatly desired to see you. He is contrasting himself with these unbelieving Jews who were persecuting the church. They are persecuting the church on the one hand, but as for us, we want to come back and see you. Now, Paul says they were forced to leave for a short time. Clark and Jameson Foster Brown say that might refer to the suddenness of his departure rather than the length of the separation, because Clark says Paul does not anticipate a short separation. He anticipates a longer one. But many people say, no, he just anticipated staying away for a short time and planned to get back to him. And I think the majority of you is right there. That's what it sounds like to me, that Paul wanted to get back in a short time to see the Thessalonians. Clark says if that were the case, this is a false anticipation because Paul did not soon return. However, we know at the end of the second journey, which is around 56 A.D., if my memory serves me correctly, Paul did pass through Thessalonica on the way back from Corinth as he at the last leg of his third journey as he was taking the poor relief offering back to Jerusalem, that would be about five years later. So that's a long time before we saw him again. We move now to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18. Paul continues, So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, Paul says, even I, Paul, he's probably referring to the fact that Timothy had gotten back and Silas had gotten back, his traveling companions. We read in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2, Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, to strengthen and encourage you concerning our faith. So in Athens, which came right before Corinth, when Paul was writing this letter, Paul had sent Timothy back up to Thessalonica, but he says, even I wanted to come back. Timothy made it back, but even more than Timothy, even I, even more than Timothy, I wanted to come back, but couldn't do it because Satan hindered us. How did Satan get hindered, hindered Paul? Now, notice that even the great apostle Paul had to fight the devil, and even he sometimes got balled up with with Satan's oppositions to Paul. However, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, God in his providence overrode the work of Satan. Paul did a lot of good missionary work during his absence from Thessalonica, so Satan hindered Paul from getting back to Thessalonica, but that didn't stop God's work from going on. 
Paul left Thessalonica. He went to Berea. He went to Athens. He went to Corinth. He's doing all kind of good stuff. Now, let's see what John Gill says about Satan hindering Paul. Quote, how did Satan do it? Quote, by moving the mob which rose at Thessalonica to go to Berea and disturb the apostle there, which obliged him, contrary to his will, to go to Athens instead of returning to Thessalonica, as he intended. And when at Athens, from whence also he might purpose to return thither back to Thessalonica, he was hindered by the disputes the Jews and the Stoics and Epicurean philosophers had with him. And after that might be prevented by the lying in wait of the Jews for him, of which he might be informed of, or by disturbances raised in the church, or churches where he was, by the false teachers, which required his stay with them, to oppose and refute error and heresy, and to make up differences that arose among true Christians, fomented by Satan and his emissaries. Gil is a long-winded son of a gun, but I like the way he talks. So, yes, Paul's constantly fighting the devil as he spread the word of God all over the Roman world. Now, I just mentioned that Paul had not gotten back to Thessalonica, but Timothy had, and I read you the verse that told us that in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 2. Silas had not gone back either, some people say, Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, but Adam Clark says Silas had gone back to the Thessalonians accompanying Timothy. Now, that's debated in the introduction in the previous audio. I talked about how some people say that Timothy and Silas stayed together as they went back up north on that third journey, and Paul stayed down in Athens and Corinth. Some people say they split up, Timothy going to Thessalonica, Silas going to Philippi, whatever. We don't know, but we do know that Paul didn't make it back to Thessalonica, but Timothy did. We finish up the chapter now, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, by reading this. For who is our hope or joy, Paul says, or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Who is our hope? Paul had no hope on this earth. He had no prospects on this earth. He had given up everything as dross and dung to gain Christ, as Adam Clark said. But he had a prospect in heaven. And there was the joy of seeing his converts there with them. So that was his hope, his confident expectation of the future, to be crowned with a crown of victory and to have joy and to be able to boast about the work he had done on earth in the presence of Jesus, to boast of Jesus, look at here, Jesus, look at these Thessalonians, aren't they beautiful? This is because of my work that I did with them. So, now I said in heaven, actually it doesn't say in heaven, it says we can boast in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming. Now again, is that his coming in 87 or his coming at the end of the world? I'm going to assume it's the end of the world here. He says, and who is our hope? Is it not you, you Thessalonians? You are our glory and joy. These guys got along good. I mean, it's a lot of difference between the Corinthian church and the Galatian church. The letters were a little bit, little bit harder. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with 1 Thessalonians 2. In chapter 3, Paul talks about Timothy's report. He had already sent Timothy up to Thessalonica, as I said. Timothy came back and gave him some good news. So another happy chapter in chapter 3. hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>